as, as part of the fabric of our family. So we're grateful, too, for our vets who are here. Thank you, guys, for and ladies, for your faithful service and the sacrifice your families have made over the years to do the things that you've done. Second Corinthians chapter 3, if you know, been with us, you know we've been through uh, verse by verse through these two letters we know as uh, first, first and Second Corinthians. God's plan for a healthy church is the title, a general title. Uh, study through these books here, particularly in uh, chapter two, really beginning at verse uh, chapter uh, chapter three, really beginning at verse six, all the way through verse eighteen. The glory of the gospel, in particular, this uh, today is the uh, the old covenant and the new covenant. So, if you've not been with us, don't worry that you won't know what we're talking about. God's word is always faithful to uh, divide soul and spirit joint and uh, and marrow and and uh, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So uh, we come away in our time of. Uh, so it's technical stuff today. Sorry, guys. So thank you, Alex. Um, George, Luke, George Lucas, a, a name that's probably familiar to you, uh, spent four years. Well, I had a funny, had a funny picture at the front there. I didn't want to pass that up as we move into Thanksgiving. Some of you will catch that. George Lucas spent four years sending uh, the script for Star Wars around to the various studios, racking up numerous rejections in the process. Uh, Universal Studios, United Artists, both turned him down for Star Wars. Finally, an executive from 20th Century Fox, um, who had seen another film he'd been involved with and had been impressed by that, decided to give him a chance with Star Wars. The film was made for $11 million, and it was released in 1977. It's a film that broke all box office records. It earned seven Academy Awards he made an intergalactic tale of which you're familiar of good versus evil and just great storytelling and cutting edge technology. And he changed the movie business. And movies uh, haven't been the same since. And since then, the original Star Wars trilogy has grossed over $2.4 billion. Things changed for Lucas after that. He, uh, he went on to write the stories for The Empire Strikes Back, The Return of the Jedi, which he also produced. 1980, he was executive producer of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, which was directed by Steven Spielberg, and he won five Academy Awards. He went on to create a, and co-executive produce many other movies of which we're familiar. He's noted as saying during an interview with Fortune magazine, quote, I make movies that nobody thinks are going to work, end quote. And when he first went out on his own, there was no expectation that the movie idea he wanted to do would work. But since that time, however, it's been quite a different story. When he is involved, there's always this hope for unimaginable success in the movie industry, and uh, which is one of the reasons why Disney purchased the rights to Lucasfilms for $4.1 billion. Just this imagination that uh, it would be successful. But it was a confidence that was based on Lucas's past successes and a hope really based on established facts. Now, for illustrative purposes, as we move into our text, if you look at Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12... You're going to find there uh, this passage. Just read it together, and then we'll kind of back up and, and get our footing here. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, he says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And the new covenant brings a hope to those who believe. It's a hope based on the marvelous nature of the new covenant, based in Jesus' blood, the cross, and the principles uh, that provide for us the, the redemptive plan of God. And and so we understand, Paul, as he says, therefore, having such a hope, as we've gone through this passage, we understand that foundation of which Paul stands. He says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And so as has been our habit, as we've worked our way through, really since verse uh, 6, 
we've kind of picked out these these marks of the new covenant, marks of the old covenant. And this is our next mark of the new covenant. And it is a uh, new covenant brings hope. It's a sure expectation of a wonderful, secure future. Uh, hope that of a future that's not like the past. And not full of failures, not full of death, not full of condemnation like we've seen with the old covenant. We see the outcome of what God did through the offering of his own son. He proved he was willing to go to any length to redeem the lost. And when we see the victory of the empty tomb, when we see death conquered, uh, we see the ministry of righteousness offered to all who believe. And, there, and there's this great confidence and there's this great hope for the future that Paul expresses here. But not just Paul. Uh, it's illustrated very wonderfully for us in First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. And we see this illustration of what this hope looks like here so clearly. Uh, Peter says this. He says, um, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That kind of sums up what we just got through saying, what Paul has taken a number of verses to talk about as he talks about the new covenant. This is an active, vibrant, flourishing expectation for the future. That's what hope is. It's this active, vibrant, flourishing expectation for the future. It's not the hope in, in the sense that we use it in today's language. I hope that I get a, you know, your child may say, I hope I get a train set for Christmas. There may be, it may happen, it may not happen. But the hope in the scriptures is based on a sure expectation of the future. And Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, this is, first of all, this is an expectation. The hope that here, as Peter explains it, is an expectation of eternal life based on the conquering of death by Jesus. Paul says that the new covenant is our great, sure hope, one that makes him bold and confident to speak of it. We're going to see that in just a minute. Peter says that we have a living hope, a full expectation of eternal life. And with this life given to us as a gift of grace, which we looked at last week, and you can catch up with that online if you need to, uh, he also says, verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so the second thing that we see here, I think, important to, to pull out of this principle, the principle of hope, is this living hope, this full expectation of eternal life, comes with other things which are considered part of our inheritance. Uh, God's presence, a close fellowship with Jesus, that's a secure hope. The rewards that God has planned for you, that's a secure hope. A great expectation for the future. Everything good and right and true that will be present in the eternal state, that, that's all part of that wonderful expectation of hope for the future. And all the surprises and all the beauty that are part of his nature and many of the other things that you can no doubt fill in right now and are filling in. And all that is, all that is, in verse 4 says, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So we have this marvelous hope that's guaranteed, and this hope is uh, has so many things as that are included in it. So then we say, Paul says, to obtain an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So thirdly, your hope is guaranteed. All these things that he's mentioned, all these things that he's mentioned, your hope is guaranteed. And, and just in case you're looking again at your inability to, to be completely uh, obedient to Christ's commands and you're worried that perhaps you won't be good enough to inherit all that stuff, Peter says, you know, the new covenant relationship that is by grace through faith to those who believe.
war between the new you and the desires of the flesh. But make no mistake, fourthly, you are protected by grace. Christ. So get ready for action in this unredeemed world. Keep your spirit on an even keel, so not thrown around by any wave of doctrine, any difficult circumstance, whatever it might be that comes along your way. So uh, Peter just says, keep sober in spirit. And he says, fix your hope. Uh, set your hope on what? Your ability? You set your hope on your ability to complete all those things that the Lord has told you to do? No. Have full expectation that you'll always be successful in your resistance to the world and the flesh and the devil? No. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So everything we just talked about, all the parts of the new covenant, the gospel then is this final word where everything is complete. Christ took care of all of it on the cross and made this complete package for you to be delivered to you in this ministry of righteousness that we talked about last week. Everything we talked about, all part of the new covenant, the gospel is the final word and there's no other word. This is it. Fix your hope completely on it. It isn't the old covenant and the new covenant plus your efforts based on the rate of your success. No. New covenant ministry will continue and never be replaced because there's no more for you to do to earn it. This is not based on your ability to keep God's law. It's not based on your, on your goodness or anything about you inherently in your flesh that you could do. It's based upon the work of Christ, completed in Christ, and delivered to you by grace through faith. So New Covenant ministry will continue. It's never going to be replaced because there's no more room for you to do anything to earn it. New Covenant will produce obedience because that's part of the ministry of the Spirit. And we looked at that already a couple weeks ago. It's part of that New Covenant ministry, the ministry of the Spirit. And we will celebrate those victories and that fruit, which is part of the glory of the New Covenant throughout all eternity. We will be led in victory in Christ. And it's all been done in Him. And He has accomplished once and forever the redemption of His people. And there's no higher truth than that, see. So Paul says, it's with this hope we speak boldly. You're going to get new understanding of the richness of the gospel as we grow. We certainly will have all eternity to discover the marvelous nature of the Lord and all the ways that he's worked all this out. But we'll never get beyond that. We'll never get beyond the gospel. That will be That is the, that is the marvelous, uh, grand uh, manifestation of God's redemptive plan to everyone. Never get beyond this new covenant. There's nothing beyond that. It's a hope that remains. And we saw that in verse 11. Look back now. Look back, if you would, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And that's what we'll spring off of as we get into the new passage today. For if that which fades away was with glory, and we looked at all of that, so the old covenant is fading. Hebrews says it's obsolete. So it says this old covenant is fading, but it came with glory. We looked at all that glory already a couple weeks ago. Much more that which remains is in glory. That's this marvelous idea that will be led in victory in Christ. It's all been done in Christ, accomplished once and forever the redemption of his people. And in that verse, we saw our fifth trademark of the new covenant. It's a glory that remains. It's everlasting. See, a marvelous glory that never fades away, that exceeds, as we saw earlier, it exceeds the old covenant glory as if the old covenant glory didn't, what didn't even exist. It's so much more in glory. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, having such a hope, we just saw Peter talk about it, so we understand that marvelous hope, everything that Paul has alluded to, and has, has, he, he's brought to the church here with some understanding that there's some knowledge there at the church to understand these things. Having, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech because we have this comprehensive hope, we speak up, and that's our next mark of the new covenant. The next mark of the new covenant is, new covenant brings confidence to our witness. 
brings confidence to our witness. And we've spent a lot of time over the last six or eight months here uh, training you uh, to be evangelists. Many of you have said, you know, I'd like to. I'm not sure how to go about that. And so we've brought a couple different forms of training to you. And the most recent one was as Dawn Sunshine. And we'll continue to do that. But really, I think, as Don even referred to when he was here, there's a certain this is a certain motivation that comes from our understanding of what's been accomplished in our own life. And that's what Paul's referring to. Therefore, having such a hope, understanding all that's accomplished through Christ on the cross and that redemptive process, we have great boldness in our speech. And Paul uses the word we as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to help the church know that every follower of Christ has the same boldness. Paul does this often. I like it. When he says we, he's just kind of including everybody, you know. Hey, just come along. It's not for just a few people. It's not just for a couple in the upper echelon of Christianity. This is everybody who's been redeemed, see. Everybody has the hope. And so because we have this hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And as we did above, there's a couple things, I think, uh, principles that are noteworthy uh, about this about this boldness. Number one, obviously, it's not a boldness that comes from a confidence in our own abilities. Okay, so... We've looked at that at length, and if you remember uh, back in Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4, and you can just look there in your copy of God's Word, just kind of slide back a few verses. Remember, Paul says, Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. That was under the whole title of inadequacy, one of the keys to being uh, useful to God, understanding that you're inadequate in your own self to accomplish anything eternal for the kingdom. And so that that is part of the base of knowledge that we come into uh, this passage with. So... It's not a, not a boldness that comes from confidence in our own ability. Paul says, we don't consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. And so it's not that you can't do anything. It's not that you're completely useless. It's not that just saying I'm inadequate to the task somehow is full of glory. It's when you realize that you personally don't bring anything to the table that accomplish anything for eternity apart from the Lord working through you. Then you have a very solid foundation on which to minister. Okay. It's not that you're like, I can't do anything. The Lord has equipped you to be a minister of the new covenant, a servant of the new covenant. And so number two, so it's not a boldness that comes from confidence in your own ability. Number two, boldness comes from the confidence we have through Christ toward God, who he is, what he can do. See? And this attitude directly affects how we respond to any given situation. When we have confidence in our Lord and what he has done and the sure hope we have in all of that, that becomes the foundation off which we witness. So you never have to doubt your calling as, as an evangelist, as someone who's carrying out the Great Commission. Why? Because you have that very solid foundation on what Christ has done. And with that, that hope, you have boldness. See? And as a footnote on the other side, because I think it's important to talk about that, um, until we begin to assimilate the wonder, now catch this, assimilate in your own heart and in your own mind, the wonder of the benefit of the relationship we have with God through his Son, We'll never have the boldness that Paul says we're to have. And don't expect people to want something that you're not excited about. If the wonders of the great mercy that has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that we just saw in 1 Peter 1.3 hasn't impacted you, why would it impact anyone else? If you're not, as Colossians 1.12 says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the adherence of the saints in light. If you're not overwhelmed by the fact that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin, then who else is going to give thanks? 
Do you understand? Part of the part of the emphasis in carrying out the Great Commission is to know who you are and what's been accomplished for you. And Don mentioned that numerous times. If you're not excited about it, why would anybody else be? If it hasn't impacted you in a significant way, where when you're alone with the Lord and you're in your time in the Word each day, it, there's some time where you give thanks for the marvelous nature of your salvation and the transformation that's occurred in your life. If you're not excited about that, if you're not excited because you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, then who else is going to give thanks and who else is going to be excited about it? Certainly not the world because it's the smell of death to those who are not believing, right? We saw that back in chapter 2. See, so going out into your neighborhood and say, hey, please come to church, why would that even work? If they've never been impacted by a witness, if no one's ever said, hey, did you know um, in, in this... If you get to know this person, your neighbor or whatever, did you know that you know the, the Lord has accomplished something for you? But and did you realize the situation that you're in, that you're under a curse, that that you know, no matter how good you think you are, there's no amount of good that's ever going to add up to the goodness of God, and that heaven's as far away from you as it's ever been, and you're never getting any closer to it, right? Do you know, eighty-two percent. I read this statistic not that long ago. Eighty-two percent of people who are asked, "Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die?" answer yes. Now, I've given that illustration before. It's as if, you know, you get in your car in front of your, in front of your driveway and uh, somebody says, so uh, where are you going? Uh, we're we're going to go to Banff. Oh, super. Um, do you have a map? No. Just going to drive around until we get there. Okay. Good luck with that. See, it's impossible for them to understand, but as soon as you begin to be a witness... And then they see the great hope that's in you because when you get to the part where they've redeemed, when you've been redeemed, that's your testimony. And see, that's when you're excited that, you know, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's part of your testimony because that's what happened to you, right? That's what happened to every believer, everybody who's by grace through faith has been saved. That's, that's your reality. See, until those become exciting to you, who else is going to be overwhelmed by it? No one. The difference between the old and the new covenant is profound. And when we catch a glimpse of that, we can venture then, beloved, beyond our limits and abilities and comfort zones to share the gospel. Paul says, we boldly speak, not because he was some great and powerful speaker. In fact, the church criticized him and said, you know, he's really powerful writing, but he stinks when he's up, you know, in front of us. But he knew his God and what his God could do. Like we said before... You know, when you, have, when you have confidence that your adequacy for ministry comes from God, and when you have a confident hope that everything God has said about your future is 100% true because the fulfillment isn't dependent upon you, you can be bold because you don't have to second-guess your call. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on what the Lord has done. And you have great confidence in that. It takes the, the, whole, the whole focus off your ability and puts it straight on who really accomplished your salvation, see? You don't have to second-guess your witness opportunity because everything, every opportunity just becomes a time for God to demonstrate his power. And everything just becomes an opportunity for God to show himself to be true. But until you get excited about that, until you have this this marvelous hope, and upon that hope then you you boldly speak, nobody else is going to be excited about it either. And beloved, I will say to you with a heart of compassion and love, that if you're not excited about that and that's never excited your heart, you probably aren't born again. 
you maybe have been following mom and dad to church all your life and you've been sitting in, in services and just kind of doing the church thing and you went through youth group and, and whatever and you went to Awana and you got the Timothy Award or whatever and you just went through the motions, okay? And people can go through the motions. And we've gone through this over and over again. But think about Israel. They knew how to go through the motions. And not only did they know how to go through emotions, they developed a whole bunch of motions on top of that to put a fence around the motions they were supposed to do to make sure they never violated anything and they were as far from the Lord as they could be. So don't think somehow because you've been coming to church with your mom and dad or with your spouse or whatever, or somebody, some friend invited you, you just kind of been going through the motions and, and you like church and it makes you feel good and, you know, and, and it's kind of nice here and people are nice and, and whatever. Listen, don't, don't somehow interpret that as you're born again because, you know, and I get the, the, the struggles of life can kind of take, take, the, take the shine off of us sometimes, right? And difficult times can take the shine off of us. But ultimately, when it's just you and the Lord, don't you get revived again about, with that? You know, I mean, does that, make, does that make you full of joy? Do you think about being translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son? Because that should, that should be so in your heart, so overwhelming. See, And if that's not in there, I would just say, you, you may not know the Lord. And I, I, would, I would take you... I would take you to that first step and say, listen, you need to confess that you're far from him. If this hadn't excited you, then nothing will, beloved. Okay? Nothing will. There's nothing in this world that's going to offer uh, what you can find here. So, so you have this confidence in your ability that your adequacy for ministry comes from God. You have this confident hope everything God has said about the future is 100% true because your fulfillment isn't dependent on you. Then you can be bold, Right? Because you don't have to second guess your color. And then, fifthly, you can have boldness no matter what the response might be. See, some, some of you told me, you know, I, I like to witness, but I'm afraid what they will say. Don went through that as well when we did the, when we did the, uh, the training. I'm, I'm concerned about what the response is going to be. See, but you remember when we looked at uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Um, Romans 3, 3 says, What then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Just because somebody didn't believe what we said, does that nullify God's faithfulness? No. May it never be, rather let God be true, though every man be found a liar, as it's written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. You know, and there's a lot there, and we won't go, we won't break that apart. We have already, and you can go back and, and catch up on that if you don't uh, know uh, that teaching. But ultimately, Paul says, you know, we have a boldness because what God says is always right. See? Um, and what God promises, he'll always perform. And Paul could say, and so can you, I'm absolutely certain that whatever the opportunity that comes up and whatever door is open and whatever obstacle appears in the way, it's just a chance to show again that God is adequate and he has made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. So, so we can speak boldly, as we said in Daniel several years ago, we'll not fear what others can do to us, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They demonstrated that, right? Did they not? In the middle of the kingdom, they knew God could save them. They just didn't know if he would save them, but that didn't stop them from doing what they did, right? Whatever, uh, whatever God did, they trusted him for it, even if the furnace took their lives away, right? And so they could walk into the furnace with confidence. Whatever the results might be, God chose to do a miracle. And even if he had not, how he responds, uh, how we respond is more important than any miracle uh, we may receive. Paul said as much the same thing, that you know, when you're confident in who you are and what your message is, you're not really worried about what the response is going to be. See, if you're excited about what the Lord has done, and you can put that together in your testimony, which is why we, when, when you come to faith here and you get baptized, you have to work on your testimony. And so when you're standing there in the water, what do you do? You, you give your testimony. 
Why? Because it's the most important thing that you're going to give to anybody in the rest of, for the rest of your life. I mean, you may be a very intelligent person and you teach uh, school every day or classes or whatever, and you impart all kinds of wisdom and philosophy to them, then that's fantastic. But the most important thing you'll ever tell anyone is the, minute, is the message of the gospel combined with how the Lord changed you. So you should know exactly what to say here. And if you don't, that's on you. Start putting it down. Write it down. How, how did the Lord save you? You should know that. It should be part of your part of the very fabric of who you are. You should as easily be able to tell somebody that as tell them what you had for breakfast this morning. It should just come right to your mind, and you should just easily be able to communicate to that, that to, to someone. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you know, Paul wasn't worried about the outcome. Do you remember this? I love this passage. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Now, this is the great Paul, okay? This is the one that I always tell you jokingly, you know, I think Paul is always standing over me, you know, looking down his nose through his glasses at me and saying, get your act together, Parker. You know, you're just always looking up to him and thinking, man, this guy is fantastic. And here's, here's what he says. He says, you know, we were there, we were burdened excessively beyond our strength. So they're worried, right? There's stuff on them and it's beyond their strength to support that stuff, okay? So we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves. Now, you've never witnessed to anyone, I don't think, perhaps maybe some in here, but very few, have ever witnessed to someone and you were worried they were going to kill you immediately, okay? That's just not something that in America we have to go through. Now, if you're somewhere else, it very well might be the case that you might worry that perhaps someone will kill you. But at, at this point, most who here today probably haven't had that uh, that experience. So think about what Paul's saying. So we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust to ourselves. So we thought, see, because of our old boldness, that we would likely be put to death. So we didn't trust in our own ability to get us out of the situation. That's what Paul's saying. I wasn't trusting in my ability somehow to finagle out of the situation. Now mark this next part. So we, we couldn't trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Did you catch that? So here's the deal. We were sure we were going to die now listen, this is so incomprehensible in today's modern church, okay? Listen, we, we were sure we were going to die, but it was okay. Listen, catch this. Because physical death can be overruled by God, so he just raised us back up, so we're okay either way. That's what Paul said. You know, I read that again t- uh, like Wednesday of this week. I was like, wow. What was the first thing you thought? This is beyond our ability to escape. We can't escape. And then was he completely despondent? I'm going to die. Like it, somehow that's a terrible thing. No, Paul says, you know, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hey, who's going to deliver you out of my hand? Well, we do know somebody who can. And whether he does or not, it's not really up to us. But regardless, we don't really have to tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to bow down to this side. And God can do what he wants. And Paul's like, you know, we had the sentence of death on us. And, um, and we despaired even of our life. But we were okay. Why? Because we trusted God who he can raise the dead. So if he wants us to keep going, they'll kill us and then he'll raise us back up. And off we go. So we missed a few minutes. I mean, that's, that's the reality of his, of his idea. Why? Because he had this great hope. He had this great hope, beloved. And it made its way into his real life. And then he says, you know, it's okay. You know, either way, you know, if... if if they kill us, God can raise us. And if he wants to, that's fantastic. And then verse 10 says, Who delivered us from so great a peril of death? So, in other words, he's telling the story. So, obviously, he's not dead or either he was raised and he's telling it. So, But he wants to make it clear. We weren't killed and God raised us back up. So, what actually happened was, he delivers from so great a peril. So, we weren't killed because God said no to the ones who wanted to murder us. And that's really what it comes down to. Uh, no, that's not going to happen today. 
and he will deliver us. So, in other words, there'll be a next time, no doubt, in, in our, our boldness. There's going to be a next time, see? And so we'll keep the same philosophy because that's the one we need to have. Like God can raise the dead, so I'm not going to worry about my life. And this next part sounds familiar. He on whom we have set our what? What's it say? Hope. And that's a marvelous hope, right? That's not just a hope that God can raise. Uh, I mean, it is a hope that God can raise you back to life, physical life. But he's going to raise you permanently. See, so there's a marvelous hope. He set our hope. That's a marvelous hope, not just for physical life, but everything else we just got through talking about, see. And he will yet deliver us. So ultimately, Paul says, um, delivery is our destination. So we'll continue to boldly speak. Don't you want a faith like that? How about 10% of that? You know, I would like a faith 10% of that, wouldn't you? Kind of moving on up in the percentages of faith like that as we get older. Wouldn't that seem logical if we understand the great hope? You know, don't you want a boldness like that? A confident assurance, a hope that translates into your commitment and into your words? We're so worried that we might make somebody mad, you know, that we might, you know, somebody might be offended might lose our job or be put in another category of less intelligent because our hope's based on Christ. We're worried about so many minor things. Paul's like, hey, you know, we had this we had the sentence of death on us, but you know, no big deal. We serve a God who can raise the dead. If he wants to, he can. You want a confident assurance of hope to translate you to commitment. Can I tell you that it's yours already in abundance if you're redeemed? Move under that banner. Christ is going to lead you in victory. Didn't we read that just not too long ago and study what that means? Who will always lead us in victory? Now, it's important to point out, and this is the sixth one, our boldness doesn't stand alone, okay? So, you know, some of us are really good at boldness. But it has to be tempered with the fruits of the Spirit, okay? So, in other words, if meekness and gentleness don't accompany our confident witness, then we have coarseness, not boldness, okay? You're going to have a force of personality, not the fruit, not the spirit working. Okay, so, and I just want to say that just to make sure we keep that rounded. You know, we have a witness. You know, and we're supposed to be bold, but don't use a megaphone to shout in somebody's face. Okay, so Paul gives us this solid combination in Colossians four five. He says this: conduct yourselves. You got that? I think. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. So, in other words, be bold. Don't shrink away from any occasion to speak, okay? Conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Here it is. Make the most of the opportunity. So whatever the opportunity is the Lord gives you, make the most of it for for the gospel, okay? But, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you'll know how you should respond to each person. See, so there's a certain temperament of of the boldness that that is tempered by the fruits of the Spirit. If you remember the 16th century Scottish reformer John Knox, many of you know much about him and have said him, but he was famous for the slogan, Oh God, give me Scotland or I die. Remember that? Uh, you probably have read that many years ago, but I, I love this. Uh, some of, some of the uh, story about him and how the Lord tempered him. He boldly spoke the truth of the Christian faith to a nation that was um, in transition from apostate Catholicism. I guess that's a, uh, the same thing. Um, it's harmful and repressive. And uh, it, it um, used religion as a way to control people and, and all of that, used imprisonments, beatings. 
But he succeeded in his mission by bringing uh, Reformation to Scotland. But one time while he was preaching in his packed church in Scotland, he was arrested for teaching the Bible outside of the church. And so he was, um, he was put in chains, forced to be a slave, do the harshest, lowliest of jobs. And he found himself at a row of oars in a galley ship. I think that's interesting that as a minister of the gospel, he found himself as a, a galley slave. Because it's not exactly what Paul says we are as a minister of the gospel. In Romans chapter 2, we're galley slave. So I think it's interesting that he found himself there. And I think during those long months uh, pushing and pulling the oars, the Lord tempered him. And so uh, according to his own his own uh, witness and those around him, he, he um, developed a real power in prayer and devotion to the Lord. He was also, during that time, the Lord used it to uh, build him in strength and health and uh, and so we was released from that. It really changed the person that he was and the spiritual maturity that he had reached. Of course, he was a bold guy already, but it gave him greater boldness and physical strength and also a temperament. John Knox's passion in preaching became so powerful that the corrupt Mary King of Scotland said, you remember this? I fear the prayers of John Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. And she eventually lost her head in England, and the rest of the corrupt leaders met dishonorable ends too. But on John's tomb are these words. This is so great. Here lies a man who never feared the face of clay. That's what Paul's talking about, isn't it? We had the sentence of death on us, but we didn't despair, right? We despaired of life, but we weren't we were absent hope. We've set our hope on the Lord. Here lies a man who never feared the face of clay, and having the great hope, he had boldness, it tempered by the Spirit, and he called people back from apostasy. That kind of hope fuel the boldness that we were talking about today. Now look at 2 Corinthians 3.13 in your copy of God's Word. So Paul has been comparing the marks of the New Covenant and life in the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness and that which remains and gives hope and boldness. All the things that he's used, as we said, we looked at these key words, these marks of the New Covenant. We said this will help us understand the New Covenant by the words that Paul uses uh, to describe it in parallel. So, ministry of the Spirit, ministry of righteousness, that which remains, that which gives hope, that's what gives boldness to the marks of the Old Covenant. And we saw all those, and we talked about these. That's how the letter kills, and the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, that's which fades away. So, he's been marking out at these uh, significant truths about both of these things. And so, it's not surprising that he actually brings Moses into the conversation by way of as an example. Moses was the prophet God used to deliver his law to the people. Uh, Moses, um, Paul's been referring to the law all along. And so now he actually talks about him. Paul says, we have such a hope, we use great boldness to express what we know to be true. And then he says this, and this is interesting, and a difficult passage, if you will, if you're looking at it just um, just quickly and superficially. So we'll, we'll break it down a little bit. And we've taken some time with this whole section from chapter 3, verse 6, all the way through 18, because it's so foundational to us. And we'll do the same here. But Paul says, Paul says we have... Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness to express what we know to be true. We have, we have this boldness in our speech. And we're not, Paul says, look at verse 13, your copy of God's word. And we're not like Moses. Now, that's interesting because I think we would think about Moses as bold, right? And, and all of that. But Paul says we're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. And I think on the surface, we can just say, uh, we're not trying to cover something that's fading away. Okay, it, it appears that Paul's saying, you know, hope and boldness. You know, Moses didn't have those things. I think we can understand that if he just gets us through, through saying, since we have this hope, we have great boldness in our speech, but we're not like Moses. 
So there's got to be some, some things that are distinct from what Moses did in the ministry Moses had under the Old Covenant and the one that Paul is talking about. And it appears Paul's saying hope and boldness, Moses didn't have those things. Perhaps, and there's a couple of reasons I think that that could be true. Perhaps it's something about the holiness of God revealed in his law that was on the face of Moses. It was something about the law that was you know, blinding and burning and searing and you couldn't look at it without destroying you and Moses had to cover it. See, Moses knew that, and, and the elders of Israel, when they approached Moses, couldn't look directly into his face, kind of like looking at the sun, right? Remember, we looked at that passage when we first started back in, section, in this section, verse 7, and so we won't go through all that again. But in Exodus chapter 34, verse 29, we get the sense of it, and it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, so he has the law, so he has the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand, and he's coming down from the mountain that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. That's God. So when Aaron and the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. So what does Paul mean? Okay, we're not like Moses. Well, number one, I think this is, in general, I think it's... um, uh, he's trying to cover something that's fading away. But I think there's more there uh, than just that. There was a veil there because there was an intensity even reflected in the face of Moses. The glory of the holy God that couldn't be approached without the blood of the sacrifice and then only once a year, it didn't lend itself to hope. Did you know that the high priest had bells on the ends of his garments? You know why? And he had a rope around his ankle. Do you know why? Because if you went in there and, they didn't, and the Lord didn't accept the sacrifice and killed him, they couldn't go in there and get it. And so he had bells on his garments, so when he walked around doing the sacrifice once a year in the Holy of Holies, they could hear him move. And if he stopped moving, they're not hearing the bells anymore, it's been a while since he's come out, they can pull him out because they can't go in the Holy of Holies. So that doesn't lend itself to hope, right? And it doesn't lend itself to boldness either. And so I think that's a fair way to look at that. It was understood correctly, the law was death. It was a ministry of condemnation. It showed God's perfect holiness, which is part of his glory, and perhaps that's part of it. But I think it appears, too, number two, that um, it's like trying to see Moses' face. The Old Covenant was unclear. Along with the Ten Commandments, God's law came down to the people through Moses. And we see in, um, we see in Exodus chapter 34, verse 18, and just think about some of these things. And these are part of the 600-plus laws that came uh, from Moses to the people. So not just a few. Okay, and we're just going to, we could spend weeks just looking at this, but let's just spend a couple of minutes. So this one came down. You shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you. At the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. Verse 19. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me and your male livestock, and the first offspring from cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey, and if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during plowing time and harvest you shall rest. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks. That is the first of fruits of the wheat harvest and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year you, all your males are to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. Now, did you hear it? Did you understand all of that? Some of it's explained by the Lord, the initial reasons for the feast. Some is explained later, as we see some of the New Testament writers refer to it. Some of it is not explained in the New Testament. And we require a, a diligent search through the scriptures for similar words and circumstances to understand what the significance of it was. 
Some of it's connected to the culture around them, so they would be separate uh, and distinct from the culture that was around them. Some of it was veiled, though, right? What, what does it mean? I don't know. Not sure. Exodus 34.25, another example. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the first fruit of the very fruits of your spoil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall, of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And hundreds of other laws of conduct and ceremony and ritual, and even those who wrote it knew there was more to it. How do we know that? Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 tells us that. They wrote that, and then they're like, what does this even mean? As to this salvation, Peter says, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. In other words, they're writing this down as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit, and they get done writing, and they read it, and they're like, what does this even mean? How does this connect to salvation? So they search and they inquire, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glory to follow. In other words, there was more to all of this ritual and the sacrifice and the ceremony and the laws and the Spirit of Christ way back then, prompting them to search. And did they get all the answers? No, but they learned something for sure. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you and these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There was more, right? Those things were hard to see. Like Moses' face, there was a veil on there. Those things didn't, didn't instill hope and confidence. Why? Because it was death if you didn't follow them. See, and Jesus, after his resurrection, you know, he's walking along the Emmaus Road. And you know this is one of my favorite passages because I tell you this often all the time around Easter. But he's with a couple of disciples. They don't recognize him. And he's just kind of strolling along. And he questions them about their sadness. And he feigns ignorance of the crucifixion. And they're like... Have you been living in a cave somewhere? No, no pun intended. Okay. You know, as a matter of fact, I have. You know, I conquered death in a cave. But anyway, all that. Story for another day. Are, are you the only one in the country who doesn't know this? And then Jesus says in Luke 24, 25, he says this. And he said to them, catch this, and this is going to lead us right into our next section. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Now mark this. Okay, mark this. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Oh, to be there. Right? I mean, isn't that one of the things you want to do in the eternal state? Could I, could we have that, you know, speech again? I mean, that would be super. Just let us sit down and you just do that again. Would you just do that? And let me get my Bible and, you know, this is going to be fantastic. So in all the ceremonies and in the ritual and the law and the sacrificial system, along with hundreds of other passages, they weren't clear. They were veiled. But Jesus, in just a moment here on the road to Emmaus, what's he do? He says, hey, I'm, I'm just going to give you all the passages that spoke about me. And all the things that you did that pointed towards me. See, And so it appears that Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to use Moses illustra- to, to illustrate several points. And it's hard to be hopeful and it's hard to be bold in the Old Covenant. There was just so much holiness and perfection and without, it, uh, without a veil, it was, it was deadly and it was consuming. See, And there was so much murkiness in understanding the Old Covenant. And so Paul says, we're not like Moses. Now look at the first part of verse 14, if you would. In your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, 
at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. And verse 15 goes along with it. Look there. We'll skip over that one section because it takes us into our next one. But um, he says, verse 15, that solidifies the observation. So the first observation is, there's mind were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. And then verse 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. So the law and the ceremonies and the rituals and the feasts and the sacrificial system, everything that is represented by the Old Covenant, it was veiled. See, it wasn't clear what the people could know about the symbolism and the reality. And here's the problem Paul points out. Some Jews are still there, see? The problem we had at first was these things were veiled, and the problem we have now is hardness and unbelief, see? Remember what we noticed before. If, if you won't accept the right valuation of your condition, if you won't accept the right valuation uh, that, that uh, the law comes to life and it kills you, like Paul said in Romans 7... If you won't realize that when it says don't covet, that's all you're doing is coveting. The law comes to life. You realize you can't keep it, and you throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God. See, if you won't do that, then all your ambition is to be good and merit credit with God. You're going to maximize the ceremony. See, if you won't, have, you won't look at the, the correct evaluation of your situation, you're just going to maximize the ceremony. That's right, And the rituals and the feast, and you're going to build a fence around the law, ostensibly to keep yourself that much further away from breaking it. Like Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24, 25, he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart, to believe. Right? That's dull and hard-hearted willfully ignorant. This is the problem. This is the problem in the wilderness. See, many wouldn't take God at his word. They wouldn't keep the Sabbath. They didn't keep the feast like he required them to keep them. They didn't keep the rules he laid down for them in the collection of manna and of the quail, right? They just did what they wanted. They didn't, they rejected the jubilee requirements. They were, it was a hardening, a callousing was taking place like we talked about before. And that's what Paul means when he says in verse 14, their minds were hardened. Those two words were hardened. Eporothe. It's where we get the, it's from the Greek verb. The root is poro'o. It's eris tense. So in, in the indicative mood, it indicates past action. So their minds were hardened. That's a past action, passive voice. That's the subject is acted on by an outside force. So the subject is the unredeemed Jew. It's being acted on by an outside force. Who is it? The Lord is doing this. Okay. Indicative mood, this is the current reality. So the current reality of the Jew continues until today. That's what Paul says. But now their minds have been hardened. This is the word which, from which we get our word poro, uh, porosis, like osteoporosis. So uh, where the bone turns brittle and hard. This is, this is the mind of the Jew during Paul's time. And that mind, noemata, refers to their thought process, their mental perceptions. They're hard and unyielding. Paul says, listen, their minds were hardened. For until this day, the, the, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the very veil remains unlifted. It was unclear at the beginning... Just because it was hard to understand what all these things could point to. But they were disobedient all along. And Paul says, now their hearts are hardened. Thought processes are hard and unyielding. They're, they're, um, they're hard. And they've been hardened. And God is involved in all of this, as we saw in Romans chapter 11, verse 7. A number of years ago, but here, the Apostle Paul is carried along by the Holy Spirit to say... Um, <coughs> What then, what Israel was seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened, just as it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, 
down to this very day. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24. Foolish men slow of heart to believe. It's very similar language. Same tense voice and mood of hardened. So the idea there is that, and there are many things connected to all of this that we won't go into today. You can catch up with that teaching if you want, if you pull that up. But they're on, on the web. But they're, they're hard and unyielding. The majority continued in unbelief in the land. They wouldn't hear the words of the prophets. They wouldn't believe what God had said. And, and now they have been sovereignly hardened. And Paul used to be in that group. He understood what that was like to have a veil and, and not understand all these things. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So he's carried along by the Holy Spirit to express this really objective truth. See, Now there's a few illustrations I'd like to look at as we think about this hardening and as we think about this hardness. And... Um, and the first place I want to start is Luke 4.14. 4, and I'd like you to turn there because um, it's going to take us into our time, uh, into the end. But um, I think it's important to get, get, the, get the sense of what Paul's saying here. But this is one of my, uh, one of my as I read through the word each, each year when I get to Luke 14, it's, it's so exciting for me. I love this passage. Um, and we're going to read a few, pa- a few, uh, a few verses here, about, about 15. So just turn there to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. We'll just kind of comment it as we go through. There'll be a couple more, and then we'll finish up. All right? So the context is Jesus coming back from being baptized and then tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then Luke relays this. He says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout all the surrounding districts. See where we are? Verse 15, And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he was, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. So the custom in the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, was to take the Old Testament, open it up, and read it. Okay? And so occasionally they would have guest readers. He got to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So it's a scroll. He opens it up, and he opened the book, and he found a place where it was written. Verse 18, catch this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, under the old covenant and during the time of, of its writing, what would people think? Who would they, who would they think they were speak, that, that, uh, that passage was speaking of? It was speaking of the prophet, right? That the prophet had been given that job, okay? So here's a passage in the scriptures that was veiled. And so Jesus reads it. And then verse 20, it says, And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And it, once again, that word attendant, I don't want to pass that up. That's the same word used of those who are under shepherds or attendants. Isn't that great? The, the, the focus is not, on, it's not on the attendant. It's on Jesus. Okay, I love that. Well, that's why one of these, this passage is so dear to me. He gave, the, he gave the scroll back to the attendant, and he sits down, and the eyes of all the synagogue are fixed on him. So you, you can hear a pin drop. I mean, imagine, it's quiet. Everybody's looking at Jesus. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work there, right? And, and people realize something's going on here that didn't go on before. I mean, every Sabbath we read the Old Testament, and we never are struck dumb by somebody reading this. That we, you know, It's kind of like the same responses when Jesus taught in other times, and they were amazed at the authority of his teaching, unlike any of their other teachers. So this is one of those situations. Jesus reads. It's really, he hands the scroll back to the attendant. It's super quiet. And he began to say to them, catch this. So, so he hands the scroll back, and he says this. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Man, does, does, that, does that thrill you? 
When you read that, is that the, I mean, can you imagine that sight? I mean, you're listening. You do this every Sabbath. It's the same thing you've done for a thousand years. You are sitting there listening to this stuff read, and, and then Jesus says, this was fulfilled in your sight. I read this, and I am that person that this, this prophet is speaking about. And all were speaking well of him, verse 22, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. You know, you can just hear, wow, he's so well-spoken. Wasn't that nice, Asher? Hi, you know, Mordecai, he's a wonderful speaker. But what in the world could that mean, right? He's a nice Jewish boy, Helga. I mean, he's so well-spoken. But he couldn't mean what he just said, that the prophecies were speaking about him. What? I mean, that's, you know, at first it's quiet, and then he says, this, this prophecy's been filled in your sight. Then all of a sudden, the murmuring starts. Why? Baal's still over their face, right? They've been disobedient all along, and now the prophecy is being fulfilled in their sight. Are they seeing it? No, look what they say next. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? I mean, dude, we know where this guy's from. We know where he was born. How could he possibly say that about himself? And so he says to them in verse 23, no doubt you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Verse 24, and he said to them, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the, day, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. In other words, in other words, there were only a few in the land that believed God could deliver during that time. And so, so a prophet was sent to one who was one of those. See, everybody else was in unbelief. And they didn't believe God could deliver and, and were cursing God and all of the things that went on when the famines came. But there were some who believed God could deliver and one of those, but not very many, and one of those was um, Elijah was sent to them. Verse 27, And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Same point, lots of people in unbelief during that time. But Naaman came, why? Because he believed that the God of Israel could heal him. And did he? He did. But there were many lepers, right? But not all of them saw a wife because they had, right? They were hardened in unbelief. They didn't believe God could do it. See? And all the people in the synagogue were filled, catch this, were filled with rage and they heard these things and they got up and they drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to what? Throw him down the cliff. So why is Paul, what's Paul say? To this very day, their hearts are hardened and the veil still lies over their, fa- over their face. They can't see this. And so here they are and they missed an amazing statement and an indicator that he was the Messiah and, and what a worship time that could have been and, and their hearts were hardened and so they tried to throw him from the top of a cliff and of course it says that he moved on through them and on because it wasn't time for him to die and he's, he's not going to be delivered to death until it's time. See? And again, you don't have to look here, but John, Gospel of John Verse 5, chapter 37, and we're going to close here, so stick with me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. So it's just open hostility now from the leaders in Jerusalem to to, to Jesus. So Jesus is saying some very strong things. He says, and the Father who sent me, he's testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. I mean, talk about throwing gas on a fire. I mean, these are the guys that think they're so religious and they built a fence to make themselves even more religious. And he just says, listen, you haven't heard God's voice and you have no time seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. And these are, if you've ever witnessed to an Orthodox Jew, you, you realize that they know the Old Testament. You better be ready 
to understand what it means between the difference in the old and new cus- uh, uh, covenant um, and be able to, to defend yourself well because they can. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's precisely what they did, right? Constantly read the scriptures and tried to obey the law. That's what the, what, that's what the lawyer said to him, right? These things I've obeyed from my youth. Instead of saying, I, I've never obeyed these perfectly and I, I don't know what to do. And Jesus would say, that's why I'm here, right? They diligently study the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life. You think that, in keep, that to keep the law and every minutia of it, you read the scriptures to try to keep the ceremonies and all the rituals, but the law hasn't come to life for you yet. And so Jesus said, Keeping, keep searching. You think you're living, but God's obligated, and God's obligated to save you. But I will tell you this, these things testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you can have life. You're not going to live. You're dead already. You're under a curse. Trying to gain righteousness by keeping the law. Its, its ceremonial purpose was to symbolize the redemptive plan of Christ. And of course, they rejected Christ. So they rejected not only the moral law, uh, a part of the law, by lowering the moral standard. They rejected the ceremonial part by missing the purpose and the point of it. And they were so ignorant of, uh, that the apostles had to preach all around Jerusalem that Jesus Christ must needs have suffered and died to fulfill the messianic prophecy. And yet it was all through the Old Testament. But they had the veil over their eyes and they wouldn't see it. And the prophets had to go back to the very big you know, the scriptures say that the Messiah had to come and suffer. They had no clue. Their ignorance and their unbelief in the meaning of the Old Covenant made them therefore ignorant of the New Covenant. And that's what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and 15. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, but to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart because they didn't properly understand that the Old Covenant was to drive them uh, to sin in its moral area and to drive them to see their need of a Savior in the ceremonial areas because they missed all of that. They couldn't comprehend the New Covenant. So the Jews of Paul's day refused to see the Old Covenant purpose and therefore they couldn't see the New Covenant purpose. They did not understand the purpose of the law. So they didn't understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of that law. And they were true offspring of their forefathers. They really were true descendants of their doomed forefathers who killed the prophets and stoned everybody that God sent to them and that they rejected. See, They were true descendants and Jesus called them that over and over again. And we'll look at this last illustration. Keeping of the law was a way of salvation. And Moses was revered you know, and, and they, they held him up in high esteem. In a rather heated conversation with the Jewish leaders, Jesus said, Do you think that I'll accuse you before the Father? The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe this writing, how will you believe my words? You think you understand Moses, but you don't. That's what he's saying. You don't understand Moses. You don't understand the Old Covenant. You'll never understand the New Covenant. That's why it's very difficult to witness to Jewish people. They don't comprehend the New Covenant because they don't comprehend the Old Covenant. And they'll argue that they do vehemently. And Orthodox Jews know it very well, but it still has not come to life for the majority. And Or there are redeemed Jews. Uh, they're called Messianic Jews. But for the most part, they don't know what, what Moses gave them was intended to drive them to despair about their sin and keep them in custody, as we see in Galatians. And to portray through the symbols and the pictures and the, the redemptive plan of God that points directly to none other than Jesus Christ. See? But since they don't understand the Old Covenant, they can't possibly understand the New Covenant. The veil of ignorance and of hardness obscures the meaning of the Old Covenant to the hardened heart. It was meant to lead them to Christ, but they just didn't see it and they didn't comprehend it. And we're out of time and I've given you a lot and it's been fun. And next time... Um, 
Lord willing, we're going to see that veil of the new covenant is clear. And that's our next mark of the new covenant. Why is that veil? Why, 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 is, why is the new covenant clear? Why it has no veil? See, the holy demands of the law have been satisfied and what was hidden has now been revealed. See, that's the opposite of the old covenant. Those, those demands of God were still there and it didn't promote hope and it didn't promote uh, uh, boldness. It promoted uh, what? Um, a, a dread of death. So, and, and the law was unclear. What did all of it mean? And how could we possibly understand it? Why was it even there? Why did we do this ceremony and keep this ritual and all that? You know, that was unclear. But the new covenant is clear. Why? Because the holy demands of God has been satisfied in Christ. And what was hidden has now been revealed. And we see that all the time in Paul's writings. This mystery, this what, was, what was once hidden, has now been revealed, right? Apocalypsis. It's removed in Christ. And all the people said... Bound be dismissed in prayer. I have a few things we're going to do at the close of our time together, so we're looking forward to that. Lord, we thank you today for just a marvelous opportunity to be uh, here today uh, together with your people to look at these things which you planned before the foundation of the world and which have worked their way out for our understanding. Thank you for those who've come before who diligently. Uh, carried along by you to write these things down and then diligently searched the scriptures to see what they meant and then they were revealed not necessarily the meanings but that they were written not for them but for someone else and Lord uh, those things uh, as we understand the New Testament were written for us in the fullness of time and so we're so grateful for this we're grateful that we understand more than they did because you've given us more not because we were worthy but because this is how you chose to reveal your plan and so now that we have this Lord and that we have this this fantastic hope which Moses didn't have in this marvelous boldness. Help us to be those kinds of people filled with hope because of this, the surety of all your plan has worked out just like it should and this marvelous boldness based on the foundation of hope that we have be those who carry out the Great Commission. Help us to do it this week. Give us opportunity, Lord. We pray for uh, open hearts and open your word and open our mouth that we might be able to give uh, the good news of the gospel. Thank you for the foundation we have, for its, uh, the imperative nature of our understanding of this, so that we know how secure we are, saved completely forever, and uh, because of the work that Christ has done. And Lord, I pray that that will make its way into the very fabric of our life. Make us joyful people, eyes off ourselves, eyes on you, knowing that whatever you brought us through, whatever difficult times, hardships that we've come through, that you have comforted us and provided comfort for us and that we can provide comfort to other people as well. So whatever our background may be, if we've come to faith in you, we, we can understand clearly that you brought us to this very point so that we might be claim, proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. And for those who sit here today and they don't know this marvelous hope and they've never maybe perhaps heard for the first time that the joy of of salvation, may that be theirs. If you're the, here today, you've never prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, before you go today, Take that card right there in the chair in front of you. It says, Welcome Guest. And right on the back it says, I, I prayed to receive Christ as my Savior, or I'd like to come to know Christ as my Savior, and give that to me before you go. It'd be our joy to, to, uh, to pray with you, to help you understand what salvation is, or if you've prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, to help you understand what your next steps are to grow in this grace and knowledge of Jesus. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That means he is who he said he is. He came for the reason he said he came. He accomplished what he said he came to accomplish. That God has raised him from the dead. For your sin, for my sin, for the law we couldn't keep, for the, the sins of the whole world. 
fell upon his shoulders. Christ, through the mouth of Jesus, the Lord, believe in your heart, God, raised him from the dead. Scripture says you should be saved. Call on him now while there's time. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen.